it, it, it is it is in many ways cyclists, and I, I know people laugh at me when I say this, but it is like quite a unique little tribe. Whether you're a roadie, and and the roadies are very much a different tribe to the mountain bikers, but the tribes are linked and they cross over. The the tribe it's it's like a tribe and a culture of sharing experiences and journeys with um, a group of people who you know otherwise you would not probably associate with. Yeah. Um, and and it's about going going to places and seeing places that you would not normally or ever have dreamt of going to had it not been for the bicycle. It's a very special culture. Welcome to Top Tube, a cycling podcast that brings together the joy of amateur riding with pro peloton opinion. With me this week, as ever, the Tashkent Express to my Heathrow Connect, David Quainton. I've always wanted to be compared to Abdul Jakarov. This is a great day for me. It's a nice day. Yeah. It's a good day for us all because do you know who else is here? Who else is Stephen here? Stephen Balby, the Via Roma to my Upper Richmond Road. Steve. Hello. I've got a cold. Very sexy voice. You're, you're, you're playing it down for us. Well, I'll try to play it up in the future. <laughs> I think that's something we could all <laughs> enjoy, yeah, for sure. Who are you? I'm Graham Wilgos. Yeah, I'm coming to that. Don't worry. Okay. That's fine. Um, and uh, and this week on Top Tube, we're going to be talking about um, Paris-Nice and Toronto Adratico, the two first major stage races of the, of the cycling season, um, have both come to a well, a, a very... Um, very exciting conclusion on, on both counts. Um, we'll be hearing from Hannah Alton, uh, our women's cycling correspondent, um, and we've got an interview with Joel Stransky, um, which we will come to very, very shortly. But before we uh, we get cracking, lads, what have you been doing this week? Steve, let's start with you. Um, well, as has been discussed already, I have been having a cold, and next week, so will you do. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Joyous. As, as we stand here, huddled around the microphone. <laughs> Try not to give too much away. The, the peak behind the curtain, um, that will maybe come with the, the end of season clips. Yes, um, well, one thing I have discovered this week, I was looking into um, my aforementioned attempt to Everest, the steepest road in the UK, claimed to be the steepest road in the world near Harlech. And it's turned out that it is, in fact, a one-way road. And so the amount of times I'm going to need to go up and down, it makes it largely infeasible. And therefore, Why can't you do a loop? No, I don't think there is one. Um, it turns out that other cycling um, shows, you know, if you can conceive of such a thing, have, have done features there since they declared themselves um, the steepest road in the world. Um, but it turned out they only filmed there for like half an hour and they asked permission from the council to... Um, to contravene the road, road traffic laws. So what you can do instead, hard not pass? Possibly. Um, perhaps we'll you know, go to our listenership for suggestions, but yes, perhaps something something else that's also insanely steep. How many... How about uh, Everest? You could Everest, Everest. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no road. I'd have to mountain bike, which is very much against the spirit of Everest. <laughs> um, well, we, we wish you well. We hope you get better soon. Um, and, I, and I wish you well this time and, next and, week. Can and, you go home? Yes. <laughs> Too late for that. Uh, David, good to see you in, in rude health. Well, well apparently. Thanks for proving that. So that's the sound, a distant sound of muffled <laughs> coughing that um, you may have uh, to get used to. David, what have you been doing with your 
your rude health this week? I ran a half marathon. You did, didn't you? Yeah, you just you did it on a treadmill. Oh, it, but still, it does. Of course, it counts. It all counts. Um, and you ran it in a, an annoyingly good time as well. It your was first on a treadmill, half. so I don't know. David, I'm going to ask you an annoyingly. Uh, did I put a gradient on the treadmill? Yes, yes, did yes you? I did. What was it? Was it at least two percent? That's that's not enough to simulate running outside. He needs at least two percent. Okay. Well, there you are. well aware of this. I, I think this. fair play I, in the same way as uh, being on the turbo trainer on, on for example, Swift. Hmm. Uh, if you're doing the miles, it doesn't matter where you're doing them. I myself prefer to do it outside or not do it as well. You know, <laughs> before, before you two both come to that. Um, one forty-two then. Yeah. Can yeah. I just point out that I once ran a fourteen-minute 5K on a treadmill, and then I immediately did a 5K. Um, that weekend and did it in 17 and a half minutes so that's how much of a difference there is it made to you in that one situation I've had I've done a bit of reading to see what the difference is and it can go either way depending on your stride length and cadence so actually for some people going outside is quicker and for some people uh, the opposite is true it, it depends on your mechanics well it depends also on outdoor conditions and headwind and gradient well, exactly and, yeah. But also the great thing about treadmill is that you just have a pace that's set for you and all you have to do is hold on, not literally, although that can help also, um, and just wait for the counter to, to, to count down to zero. Um, whereas outside you have to force the pace yourself and also you'll go faster and then slower and obviously a consistent pace is much more economical. So it all once, up. once I've been running for about 5k and then decided that I was actually just going to run a half marathon. Should we do a cycling podcast? We should at some point. Um, mm. I... Uh, went on Spotify and looked for a half marathon playlist and the one I found was great because it started playing like Calvin Harris and rubbish like that and by the time I got bored with that then suddenly it's, it, it, it's like they knew and it switched to songs that were really good like so, Rolling Stones and Stevie Nicks and things and I think we should attempt to do the same for cycling for turbo training so what I'm going to do is set up a Spotify playlist top tune relative and we're all Will, will it have all the rocky um, songs on it? Obviously, yeah, where, it's going to be where just might the rocky you find songs. that playlist if you were on social media? Well, well done for bringing that. So, at Top Tube Podcast is obviously on Instagram. Top Tube Podcast, yeah. On Twitter, mm-hmm. on Facebook, good, and on billboards up and down the country. Well, eventually, yes. I mean, we're going to we're going to crowdfund for that. Uh, I myself have a half marathon coming up, my home half marathon, yeah. Paddock Wood, having done Sunny Tunny, Tunbridge Wells. Mm. Uh, last hilly. month, it is very hilly. Yeah, famously so. Actually, um, I'm not going to get anywhere near 142. I think Paddock with the best I've done is it might be 152 actually, which is last year. Mm. Or maybe I've done quicker. I, I genuinely have no idea how. I mean, 147 is my quickest. Right. So just to round that off. At some point before I get really too old, I'm going to do the Loch Ness marathon, and the beauty of that is that the entire first half is all downhill underwater. No, no, it's all, you start in the highlands and then come down to the edge of the lock. So the second half is flat, and then the first half of the first 30 miles, all downhill. And not so steep that you ruin your knees. Um, but just, just enough, just so enough to give you a really good time. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It's really difficult. It's a monster, that marathon. Yes, well, I, who good. was going to be the... No, not very good at all. It wasn't as good <laughs> as Most as of us your, would have scanned that and, and dismissed it. It wasn't as good as your pun from last week that was completely ignored. Strada Bianchi, done and dusted. Yes, yeah, indeed. you both just glazed over it because you were too busy wanting to... You know, be hilarious. Well, 
or not. Yes. Um, Share your own opinion. The other thing I credit credit give him now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I so maybe I should have been a bit more accepting. Sorry. I said quickly. The other thing I've, I've done this week, and it will lead on to uh, our interview later, is um, find out about a race I should have known about before, really, which is uh, Cape Epic, which is taking place right mm. now. Um, Stephen, do you know? A lot about the Cape Epic, as being as it is built to be the Tour de France of mountain biking. Um, it's epic. It is epic. Tell me it's not epic. You can't. Is it also in in the south of Africa? It is in the south of Africa. Um, It's an incredibly difficult course. And on mountain bikes. And it was once won by none other than uh, Jakob Fuglsang. Really? How old was he? It was in 2008. So as a neo pro. So he would have been 22. Wow. Yeah. So you go in teams of two. Uh, and you've both got to obviously complete each stage. There's some on, on how many stages? I think eight. Uh, and it's what sort of terrain is it? Sort of cross country style? Just it's uh, focus on athleticism rather than skill. Yes, absolutely. It's and uh, up and down some incredibly steep, um, sharp climbs. Well, we'll, well, we'll, we'll come want, back to, to it. Seeing as we we'll give you a little bit more time to put. You, you mentioned Yak and Fulsang there. Um, who, of course, won a stage at Torino Adrasque this week. Um, I mean, a thrilling race in lots of ways. Uh, thrills and spells, crashes everywhere you look. Uh, well, not forgetting his name right. I mean, yeah, so, well, I'm a professional, mate, aren't I? So. Yeah, I suppose he's a professional now. Um, <laughs> he's stepped up, he's been on the stage. So uh, let's, let's come to that. So you're a professional now. What have you been doing the last week? Uh, well, I've, I've, I've been a professional cycling yeah. journalist. Yes. But now you're and, a professional broadcaster. Yeah. In a, well, in a sense, yes. Well, no, in a sense, you're literally a professional. Uh, so I'm host of, uh, as well as. Uh, well, yeah, in the, in other, the sense of being a professional well, the, broadcaster. The thing is, <laughs> other cycling podcasts are available. Uh, I'm host of the Bradley Wiggins show uh, by Bradley Wiggins. Yeah. Well, yes, I mean, it's, it's all in the name. Real it's Bradley Wiggins. It's giveaway. Mm. Uh, is so, yeah. better or worse cyclist than Steve? There is, I mean, I don't think I'm putting my neck on the line to say that he was once a considerably better cyclist than all of us. Yeah, but is he better now? Now, he's, yeah. He's, he's well, look, so one of the things he said on Sunday was, uh, if, you, if you want to race me now, my hour record's there. There you go, go and have a crack at that. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah, on the hour record, of course, uh, Victor Kampenatz. He, uh, how was that for pronunciation, Steve? No, not so good? Uh, well, almost. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> so, Victor Kampenatz. Uh, the Lotto Sudal rider, okay. who um, who won today's time trial at uh, Treno Adrasco, um, is having a crack at the hour record himself in April. Um, Which we date. mentioned on podcast two, I think. Maybe, three. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe we've mentioned it. Yeah, we've yeah, mentioned it in both, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but Campanats is having a crack at the hour record in Mexico, uh, where the altitude will obviously favour him because you're able to, as an entity, move through, through the air that much smoother. Um, he's uh, he's looking in good shape for it, having won the, the time trial in the final stage of Torreno Adratico today. Oh, it's only 10k. Short today. time trial, yeah. That's the same track on uh, which the 4,000 metre um, pursuit world record held by Archie Lamb at 407, um, being two seconds faster than John Archibald's flat earth record. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> um, at 409. And and we have a, an existing sock bet as to whether Campanias. 409. Yes, that's for the 4,000 metre pursuit, not the hour. Right, I was going to say, well, so be, I don't. <laughs> yeah, 4 minutes 09 for the hour. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably. <laughs> 
Jeez, he was really shifted. Really prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Either amazing or just terrible. I like the idea that he gets off the bike and goes, That's the point I was making last week. I just said, why not just do it quicker than um, So, yeah, no. I have. I was looking into um, who bought bike the Darbados um, people and where they're going. The People's Republic of Darbados. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, obviously John Archibald um, is going to have a go at the R record as well. We have a stock bet as to who will do um, a better time, him or Campagnette. Um I think Archibald, because he's amazingly aerobic in terms of his peak power, for anyone who knows about this, is, is only um, 1,000 watts, which is roughly, for context, about half of what, say, Kittel can produce. Um, That's his peak power? Yeah. I can produce more than that. Yeah. Wow, okay, fine. And yeah, he can hold well over 50% of his peak power for, 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 um, for you know, five to ten minutes. And I cannot. No, no. Which, is, which is, you know, amazing and yeah. actually... Um, what an incredible physiology. Well, yeah, really unusual. And the fact that he has beaten Chris Bourbon's long-standing 4,000-meter record. Uh, again, for context, you know, Wiggins, when he won the gold medal in Sid- in Athens in 2004, I, th- I believe, I'd have to fact-check this, did it in the region of 216-17. to 17. That was good enough for a gold medal by a distance. And it's moved down so much since then. It's currently at 407, and the Who What Bike guys... Um, Charlie Tanfield was um, suggesting that with if if a perfect effort could achieve sort of 403, 402, even 359 might not be out of the realms of possibility if everything goes goes really well, perfectly. Should we talk about Tirreno Adri Adico? As we as we almost did, yeah, almost did. yeah. Well, um, Primoz Roglic, Primoz Roglic, he's we'll, looking we'll great. Enjoy saying that. So he do, he's doing the Giro, isn't he? I presume there's no reason for him to be in such stunning form. From memory, yes, he is. But he's, so he's won in the UAE um, and and then taking GC by 0.31 seconds today. Ahead of, uh, against, against, yeah, ahead of a, a very unfortunate, um, I was going to say Simon, Adam, Adam Yates, yeah. um, who gave it his all. Not a time trial. Obviously hasn't worked on the time trial in quite the same way that um, his brother Simon has. Things, but all, rocking yeah, all over goodness place, me, yeah. he really was, wasn't he? Steve. You were dying to cut in. Roglic probably doesn't know whether he's going to do the Giro this year. He pro- we probably have to ask the head of Bianchi um, to find out. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the, the, the oracle on who, who yes. is and who isn't doing the um, Giro. Relative to the ongoing saga with will Garen Thomas do the Giro, he says no. Um, and Fausto Piedrello says, oh yes, he is, I've seen the list. He's a man from Del Monte. Yes. He's saying yes. Um, I who, don't who, think he's going to do it. Who else has caught your eye at uh, Trenau Adratica? Or Paris Nice, for that matter. We're, we're interested well, in both races. What interested me was yesterday's stage, where Julian Alaphilippe won not only a bunch sprint, but a complete Paris. No, so it's Tirreno. My apologies. A completely flat bunch sprint with a dead straight lead. Oh, wasn't completely flat, was it? Because there's a little rise to the. It was flat enough, so wasn't it? Yeah, but he had no So, so do we go on, Steve? Well, the point is that my comment to you two afterwards. Well, that's an amazing result for him. But on the other hand, he actually did a really bad job because he was supposed to be the lead up for for Viviani, who, along with Sagan, he started his sprint as sat with Sagan as a reference point, and Sagan was a bit too far back. Alaphilippe went in the toe of another 
um, the Colonel Quickstep rider. And so, but I believe they were Viviani's lead out train. So when he sort of managed to hold on, Viviani came fast, but far too late. Viviani seemed to look across and say, well, that's not gone well. Viviani didn't seem to be impressed, did he? No. When, he when he crossed the line, he sort of like, the, the gesture to my mind was, it was like the international signal for what you're playing at. Yeah. And it's an, it's almost like, I like to believe, being a, a fan of Alaphilippe, yeah. that he is so good now that he's winning, he's winning, races, won winning races by mistake. Yeah. Winning sprints by mistake. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. I, not only have I bossed... Uh, it is notable that at no point I've... did they look round to see where Viviani were. So in that respect, in, a, in terms of pure leadership... Well, because they just assumed that he was going to be there. And Viviani's job is to get himself in. So their job is to position themselves in order for Viviani to be on their tail or on the tail of the rider he chooses. He chose Sagan. Now, was that because Viviani, Viviani made the bad decision to be there? Or was it because Alaphilippe plus teammate, and we really should know who he... Do you want to look that one up quickly, David? Alaphilippe plus the Koenig teammate were just too powerful and in the end Viviani found him so because all of that happens so quickly so as soon as you are in the wrong position well I think it actually I think watched I think it was more that Viviani he seemed to lack faith in his teammates and clearly for good reason because he yeah. seemed to use Sagan he seemed to let them go and to use Sagan as a reference point instead so he thought Sagan was gonna yeah and um, so maybe Sagan was well, Sagan, it's Viviani's fault for choosing Sagan, and Sagan didn't, didn't lot, jump until too late. It's quite common for, for sprinters to choose Sagan's wheel, because I think a lot of the, the very, very top sprinters, um, and of that I mean Grunewagen, I mean Viviani, um, maybe Caleb Ewing, Cav when he was in form, Kittel, they often follow Sagan's wheel. If, if it came to like the last 150 metres, they could probably nose him out. So actually, he's probably a better person to stay behind in that sense than their own lead-down train sometimes. Depending what what on the in fact condition. had happened was that Sagan, with a kilometre to go, found him in an unusually bad position of second on the road, um, and then realised that he was about to be exposed um, and had to drop back. And he dropped back way too far, and then Viviani, I can only assume, went back with him, and they both had and left themselves too much to do at that point. The, the other thing to note is that when Alaphilippe first came through, he was a sprinter. He was considered mm. a sprinter and he's converted into um, the kind of ultra-puncher climber that he's become. And in fact, we've got the, and we'll talk about it later, we've got Milan San Remo coming up um, this weekend. And he'll be one of the favourites for that. Yeah, he's finished in the top three before. place yeah. the time right to win that. But actually, to raise a serious, if, if boring point, he... De Koenig shouldn't necessarily celebrate that because they won by luck almost, um, rather, you know, because they shouldn't have allowed a situation where one of their lead-out guys held on to win anyway when they'd lost their leader, who was easily the fastest sprinter in the race. And when you saw him make his jump at the end, albeit too late, he made up five yards and everyone else immediately and should have been in the position to not leave anything to chance. And so you have to wonder that I'm sure there was some man management that had to be going on in the team bus afterwards um, yeah because I'm sure Viviani wasn't very happy about uh, and a, a word on Paris Nice then boys Egan Bernal and uh, Mikhail Kiatkowski um, one and three with with, uh, with our man our man Nairo number two yeah. um, and in fact we got a, 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 a brief interview with Nairo Quintana some of his most interesting words ever yeah um, so they're coming up now Literally the most interesting. Fascinating as ever. <laughs> Thank you, Nairo. Um, and, and we look forward to hearing from Thank you as you the all. season progresses. Uh, Steve, what else stood out for you about Paris Nice? Um, 
David, what else stood out for you? Egan Bernal. Well, Sky dominated as as they, they dominated ever they do. Really. There were a number of really interesting stages, and uh, I really enjoyed the uh, the race between uh, Superman Lopez and uh, Martinez being chased by Simon Yates, which I think was the penultimate mm. stage. And it was a fascinating stage. Obviously, they'd all been let go because by that time they were miles out of GC. But you had three really great climbers, young climbers, all of them duking it out and surprisingly won by Martinez who you'd have banked well, least Education First have actually started the season very well they won the team classification for Chueno Adriatico I can't remember the last time they won the team classification for anything and they've seemed to sort it out their time trial bikes so in the well, they, no one can well no exactly. in, <laughs> the, in, in, the, in the 10 they had three in the top 10 of the individual time I think trial. they had four and they had three who finished with exactly the same yeah, time yeah, in, in the individual yeah. time trial at Paris um, which is astonishing so that new bike is and um, we talked about that earlier um, this year uh, is, is obviously a huge upgrade on the old, um, what was the old time trial bike they were on? Callendale Slice. Did, we keep... did you see, well, do you see Vorta's joke about the, 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 the three finishing with the same time in the, in the uh, sorry, in the individual time trial? Was it two with motors? Yes. got tweet the motors. Well, they've still got, they've now got an updated version of the Callendale Slice, so I don't yeah. think that's in any respect a bad bike. Well, no, but, there, is, but clear, there, there is a clear difference in their time trial ability this year as a team to last year, and the only difference, there could be many reasons, but it does seem to be. On Jonathan Waters then, before we get too technical on the bicycles mm. front, uh, what did he say this week about, uh, sorry, it wasn't this week in fact, but this has come up again this week, he said it in December, but what did he say about Sir Dave Brailsford? Um, I know the answer to this, I'm allowed to say. Well, he said... He has a great knack of reaching into a toilet and putting out chocolate. Indeed. <laughs> um, which he has again, um, as Team Sky officially become, today in fact, officially yep. become Team Ineos. Um, well, well first, officially? Of, first of May, well, it's been announced officially by Sky now. But their name will only change at the uh, Sky first of May. No, no. First of May. So they'll, really? they'll yes. change it for the Tour de Yorkshire. Yep. And what's so Sky pulling out? together after that point. Yeah, so they're happy to. So there's there's a history of this in the sponsorships that Ineos have done. So uh, obviously they're run by the, um, owned by the richest man in the UK. So Jim Ratcliffe. Um, yep. So he just started dipping his toe in the water of sponsorships. I say dipping his toe, actually he's got involved in a major way, uh, and including most recently uh, Ben Ainsley's uh, sailing team. Uh, sailing team attempting to win the uh, America's Cup. What's that called? Uh, team Ineos. That's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, in which, uh, rather than, as with, normally with these things, you'd have five or six different sponsors, he just said, no, we're going to stick in all, I think, 110 million and we'll be the sole sponsor of it and that'll make things cleaner. And I think he's done the same here with Sky. So, look, I'm going to sponsor you, I'm going to sponsor you from now. I don't want any handouts. Very easy in terms of Sky's operation mm. um, because they're not looking for several sponsors. Uh, it's, it's just a straight swap. One of the, perhaps one of the saddest things about it, and you might disagree with me on this, is that um, Castelli's kit, which is probably the finest we've seen in the peloton for many great. a year. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Uh, well, well, well Ineos aren't going to make their own kit, are they? So, well, so will it will it just be a straight sponsor swap, and we, we keep the kit, or will, this, will everything well, everything be redesigned? No, because Sky don't just have um, a partnership with Sky, um, the broadcaster. They also have 
not simply sponsorships for kit and bike, but really productive, close-knit work, um, performance partnerships with the likes of Pinarello and Castelli, where rather than just you know slap their brand on something, they actually work with Sky to develop um, cutting-edge uh, products that take their performance onto a, another level. That sounds like a bit of marketing spiel, but I think that's been borne out. And there are many reasons why they're not simply going to, having worked with them, you know, especially Pinarello now for the entire duration of Sky the last 10 years, are not going to cut them loose for the sake of a better sponsorship um, package. And, and obviously, as has been commented on, the Ineos thing, the key value of it, other than simply matching or increasing the sponsorship value, is that it will allow Brailsford to keep doing what he's been doing and give him, you know, the freedom, even more so, to, to act in the way he sees fit um, for the performance of his team without having to cop to sort of sponsorship demands um, or, or allow anyone to interfere. So that's, that's, that is the value of it for him, I'm sure. Here's one for you then. If I'm a businessman and I've got 20 million quid... You mean businessman? I mean, if, if I've got 20 million quid to put into siphon, right? And I go along to, say, Jonathan Borters at Education First, and I say, Jonathan, I want to give you 20 million quid for <coughs> next season. Can you win me the Tour de France? And Borters goes, I'm sorry, mate, I can't do it, um, because there's a, there's a team over in the UK who are putting in double that, it's so I can win you, I can win you a stage, yeah. maybe. I can win you two stages, perhaps, but I cannot win you the Tour de France unless a unless hundred things go our way. Yeah. Um, but you've got, you've got a team with... Twice the twice the resource, twice the capacity, and, and, and a really super simplistic model, um, which allows them to operate at a higher level than well, most I mean, other teams. On, on, on the you know, on the, they can simply afford better riders. Team Team Sky's A one um, Grand Tour team is miles better than anyone else's. So now, do we think their stranglehold is going to be even tighter on the tour? Because the, the French keep changing the route in order well, to I mean, they've, they've got Banal and they've got Sosa. You know, it's, it's not like they've, they've, you know, they've got Banal, they've got Sosa, they've got um, uh, Teo. It already these, these really great young riders coming through. To, to cut the short, yes, nothing that. will change. There'll, there's no reason for anything to change. They'll be at least as good as they were before. A, a wider question for me is: um, I've only got six, 2016 figures to hand. My question is: it's a bit unanswerable, but I'll ask anyway. Why, if 35 million or 34 million or whatever the figures are quoted for Sky's current, the broadcaster's current investment in the cycling team, um, even if that increases now, why is it so hard? If you have, if you're the richest man in Britain or if you're Bill Gates and you happen to like cycling or whoever, why is 34 million the ceiling and so much? more than any other team because in 2016 Sky had a budget of 31 million and BMC and Katusha both had 25 and Movie Star who needs to be <laughs> remarked Movie Star, Star <laughs> my apologies again uh, must bear repeating David you've talked about riders and yet they clearly had the biggest threat to Sky in Quintana and yet their budget was an absolutely paltry 12 million that year um, so it can't just be. Well, there's only so many riders. So, so yeah, but they had Valverde as well. Yeah, but there's there's only so many riders a team can sign. So, 
ultimately, if you're going to pay for the top riders, you're going to have however many in, the, in your squad. But let's say you've got 10 absolute top riders in there, there's still going to be another 30 out there who might actually be able to get into that squad on an ordinary day, but they're going to have to go somewhere. So Tom Dumoulin, um, Quintana, Nibali, these, these, these people, could all they could all ride the sky, but they've got to go somewhere. They just end up getting paid less. But what, I mean, what confuses me that 30 million for a billionaire, and Jim Ratcliffe, as I'm saying, has 21 of your English billions, um, instead of paying 35 million or 40 million, why not he pay 80 and put it beyond doubt? And that, why is it so hard? What is wrong? Well, we don't know how cycling? much. To be fair, we we don't at this stage know how much he's putting in. And to ask that question, you only pay. He's a businessman. He's paying market value, and that and that's uh, if that's what he is paying. So let's say he pays 40 million. That's what the market value will be. He's not going to just going to throw money somewhere that he doesn't need to. He's a businessman. So he'll invest as much as he needs to to ensure a certain level of success. Yeah, absolutely. And, but why then does someone else not come along and say, I'm going to match that or I'm going to increase that by, I'm going to invest because 50 million. Because cycling is a, is a cottage industry. You have to attract a, a, a guy with a certain amount of money plus interest in cycling, plus willingness to invest. There you aren't actually, there's probably a, a handful of people in the world who want to do that for each world. And you're chucking away money in cycling. In, so, in, so for example, compare it to the uh, the rich sport in the world, which is football or even uh, American football. Both of those take place inside stadiums where you can make millions in a single yeah. game. But cycling, you have um, interest is not global in the same way as it is uh, or doesn't have as many viewers as those, those sports. It, people don't pay for it in a pay-per-view way in this, for those sports. ASO takes all... ASO takes all the stuff. So the ability to generate cash in cycling is much more difficult than other ones. So it's a less attractive investment. But Roman Abramovich did not invest in Chelsea to make money. And Chelsea might be a, now a good um, revenue creator, but he's lost billions overall in, by, by, by his involvement yeah, in Chelsea. The, the sale value, the apparent um, value that he wants to sell at Chelsea for is £2 billion, and he's invested £1.2 billion so far, so he stands to make £800 million out of it. It's a much, Sky were very lucky to be able to sell um, the entity Sky, Team Sky, for the money they did. That's actually very rare in cycling because on its own, a cycling team is not worth a lot of money, whereas a football club with a stadium and with property and all that stuff is worth a lot of money. Fair enough. Well, I mean, ultimately, it shouldn't come as any surprise that Browsford has been able to... (laughs) Get some chocolate. Get some chocolate. Um, Because Sky already made tour in the outfit and, you know, it would be crazy if, if they weren't able to find... To avoid us becoming the Ineos podcast this week, perhaps perhaps we should, we should move it on. What what is one thing that Team Sky are still not doing despite this renewed um, huge investment? Winning classics. Well, they won San Remo a couple of years ago with uh, on a regular basis. I mean, they, Kowski. they won. They won. Uh, Convincing the British Select Committee. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, quick, run away from that as quickly as possible. I'll tell you one thing they are still not doing, or I certainly have no public plans to do, uh, is begin a women's team. That's interesting. Um, so imagine the boost that would give or could give the women's peloton. So um, why? What are the reasons? <clears throat> well, I think that's, that's one to come to another week, but for an update today on what's going on in the women's peloton. Our first update. Our first update. Here's Hannah Alton. Here, here, about time. Yeah, well, damn right, yeah. I was was so keen to get her on, um, and and now finally here she is. Hello, my name's Hannah. I've got the heart of a climber and the legs of a descender, and I'm here to talk to you about the UCI Women's World Tour of 2019. 
The season kicked off with the very fast Strada Bianchi. Um, Annemiek van Vleuten attacked on the gravel of La Tolfe and managed to solo to victory in Siena. She's obviously recovered from her horrible knee injury of the end of last season and is quite clearly a contender for the title this year already, I would say. Um, but she was not riding last weekend in Holland to defend her position. Um, the Ronde van Drenthe was the second race, um, the longest ever women's world tour race at 165.7k. It was cold, it was wet, it was muddy, it was windy, it was full of cobbles, uh, which all of which led to a really fractured race um, that was eventually won by Marta Bastianelli of Team Virtue Cycling. She just about managed to hold off Chantal Black in a really close sprint to the finish and is now top ranking because of her fourth position in the Strada Bianchi 2. Um, Team-wise, Bells Dolman are still looking really strong. Um, they've lost temporarily their sprinter, Jolien Dor, to a fractured collarbone. Um, but they've still got Chantal Black, Annika Langvad, Amy Peters. They're doing really well. Um, they've been dominant for years. Um, however, the 2018 closure of Wiggle High Five has left a slot at the top of the team rankings, which I think Mitchelton Scott look like they're going to more than fill. They've been working together brilliantly um, tactically. Lucy Kennedy was really great in the Strada Bianchi. She really worked to protect Helmut van Vleuten. Um, and Grace Brown's attack on the fan bear and the Ron van Drenthe was really impressive too. She worked up a really big lead in a short amount of time. They're definitely ones to watch. Uh, the next race in the tour is the Trofeo Alfredo Binder, which is this coming Sunday, the 24th of March. Um, it's 131 kilometres in northwestern Italy and finishes with 17k laps of Cittilio, which is a town on the Swiss-Italian border. Looks like it's going to be a beautiful race, actually. Um, last year it was won by Casia Nuvia Doma and she's been riding brilliantly already this year so is definitely in the running. I guess we watch this space. Moving on to our interview this week, David, uh, which is an interview you did uh, with Joel Stransky um, on... Epic. We should probably explain who Joel Stransky is so let's, because let's start not, with Joel. not everyone will know. Um, if you're one of our South African listeners, then you will immediately know. I'm almost certainly be very excited by this. Um, Stephen, you probably give a good top line on Joel Stransky. When was he? When did he become globally? Famous? Well, I've I've been very excited about this because Joel Stransky is is obviously very well known to me, and I've been surprised this week by mentioning him to a few people, and I've tried to explain it well. He won the world. He kicked all the points in the 1995 Rugby Union World Cup final. I've tried to give further context by saying, well, you remember it was the it was the you know final against New Zealand with Jonah Lomu, further blank looks, and then I've said, well, remember it was the Mandela final, the final that essentially gave Mandela's government a political mandate to bring together South Africa under the auspices of his his rainbow nation. And then, and then, it was a significant given, part at the end of apartheid. It became a significant symbol. So much so that a film was made about it. In, Invictus yes, with, with Matt Damon as Francois Morgan Freeman, yes, and Morgan Freeman and as Nelson Clint Mandela. Eastwood's son playing uh, uh, Joel Stransky. So Joel, as uh, Stephen mentioned, kicked every point in the final, including the culminating drop goal from a very far out. Actually, it was incredibly skillful and coolly taken. Um, so Joel Stransky. The reason that you've spoken to him this week, or the reason that we've spoken to mm -hmm. him, um, is because he's doing 
currently doing Cape Epic, the untamed African mountain bike race as it uh, and I sells think, itself. I think it's maybe even the tenth time he's attempted it. He's he's become a, a regular now. Um, you mean attempted or completed? He's not. So uh, two years ago. He didn't even complete the prologue because he face-planted, essentially ended up in ICU. He got into cycling because actually one of the things I think we all recognise as we're all reaching a certain age is one of the great things about cycling is it it offers its less impact than the Low impact thrills. Low impact thrills, yeah. And it's much more interesting than swimming, frankly. Look no further than yeah. the top few podcast for low impact thrills. <laughs> exactly, is, is that exactly what we're saying? Would, low impact thrills would be... <coughs> Shall we go to the interview? Yeah. We well, go to the interview. David, do you, wanna, do you want to... Tee him up. Uh, he I mean, I thought I just did. Let's yeah. do it again. Let's hear from John. What got you into cycling? And did what did it? Did I guess fill a hole in some ways that you know when you you have a professional career and it like this is very structured and and you're you're at peak fitness and and you. No, so so actually it's quite it's quite an interesting story. So um, I mean I got injured when I was playing rugby and. Uh, and had to stop, and the, the doctor said, you know, maybe you need to start cycling because it's the pounding that's killing you. No. So I did a little bit of cycling. Then I came home and um, got into corporate life, and, uh, you know, about three or four years later, my knee had settled enough that I could play football. And then one day I was sitting in my cushy office at, in, 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 the, in my big corporate position, and, and Ilana May, and I don't know if you remember Ilana May, she was an Olympic medalist, middle-distance runner. Yeah, she, she ran a charity here in South Africa. She phoned me and she said, "Look, do you want to um, maybe do this thing called the Cape Epic for charity?" Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was sitting there thinking, "Yeah, you know, look, I've put on a, probably since I stopped playing four or five kgs. I'm a little heavier. I'm, you know, probably not the healthiest I around. I live this corporate life of entertaining and eating and drinking with clients yeah. and and service providers and my staff." And I thought, okay, this sounds like quite a good idea. I said, well, what is it? She said, no, it's this little mountain bike race in the Western Cape. So I said, okay, I'm in. Count me in. No. She said, okay, we'll organise your bike, and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get going. We'll raise some good money off the back of this. I said, fantastic, nice to you get fit and have a mission, and obviously to do um, a whole lot for charity. And then on the weekend, I saw in the in the weekend newspaper that I'd committed to this thing. It was like a little headline. <laughs> In the press saying I'd committed to this this race, I thought, geez, I best go and Google and see what the hell this thing is. No, it's not uh, a little thing Cape, either. It's not a little thing. The Cape Epic <laughs> is, um, you know, the toughest mountain bike race, I suppose, in the world. It's the sort of Tour de France of mountain biking. Um, it's eight days. It's it's properly hard. And I thought, oh bugger, what have I what have I committed to? But it was too late. So we dived in boots and all, and and that was ten years ago. And and on Sunday, I uh, start my tenth Absa Cape Epic. You know, and. Uh, I've, I failed in one where I obviously two years ago I fell and smashed myself up, but that that was the start of my cycling journey, and it's become a proper you know a, a, a proper drug for me. And in fact, on the back of that, I raised money for their charity and started my own charity. And and this year for my charity, we've got a whole lot going on around um, not just the Absa Cape Epic, but but also around Ironman and Two Oceans and Comrades and. Um, and, and I thought if I'm going to be doing Ironman and if ever I'm going to be tempted to run the Comrades Marathon, then this would be the year. So yeah. this is a massive year from an endurance challenge, fundraising, fitness commitment perspective. Um, fair play, because I, I, you know, I remember cycling with you and obviously you're in, in better shape than any of us. So uh, what, what's your what's your routine? Is, I mean, you're effectively semi-professional in, in, in your training? or So my routine um, has been properly intense, obviously, the last four months 
um, when, when I committed to this. And 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 I'm and I love the cycling, so it's definitely got a cycling angle and and much less of a swimming and running slant. But I mean, my week in the last I don't know the last three months has been something similar to Monday's a rest day, and so I'll swim on Mondays. Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning, we ride sort of short to medium, sometimes intervals, two sets of intervals a week. Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings, we ride long. And then Tuesday evenings, I would run and do some core. Um, Wednesday, swim. Thursday, run and core. Friday evenings, off. And then Saturday, Sundays is obviously the long ride. So in the last month, there's been a few bricks, but um, normally after those long runs, it's quite nice to just go and have a cappuccino and a piece of carrot cake. Do you want to tell us about this uh, this accident then? Because we'll probably show, we'll probably flash up a picture or show a picture of of what your face looked like after. I mean, yeah, everyone, everyone falls off, don't they? But they do, you know. And I, I I think in football they say there's two types of coaches: those who've been fired and those who are waiting to be fired. And I think in, yeah. in mountain biking. You know, there's two types of riders, those who've, who've fallen. In fact, I'd guess everyone has fallen, and it's those who've you know, suffered a, a worse injury and those who've got a few grazes and one day might suffer a worse injury. And, you know, I think yeah. we've all taken some big tumbles. Um, three or four years ago, I, I fell and clicked my neck and got a bloody blood clot in my neck. Oh. You know, three years ago, I fell and smashed my collarbone. And then two years ago, I, I fell in the race, in the prologue, and... Uh, went over the handlebars and I tried to save it, which was probably the stupid thing instead of just trying to tuck and roll and yeah. probably would, would have finished and been fine if I tucked and rolled, but I tried to buddy, land on the front wheel and pull it back and didn't. So uh, I, I smashed my face up quite badly. I had 60 stitches and plastic surgery around my eye, 20 stitches in my chin. But probably worse, I, I broke two ribs and punctured my lungs. I spent, uh, spent five days in ICU. And it sounds quite bad. I mean, the ribs are bloody sore. I mean, that's the reality. But ICU is probably more just monitoring the, the lung um, yeah. that, that needs to expand again after collapsing. And that means pipes to allow the air and blood out. And it was quite demoralizing to have, you know, spend all that time working your butt off to train, crashing out after 11.99 kilometers. Yeah, yeah. Pro Sarkis was quite sanguine about it. Harry Nice. This week, uh, Rigoberto ran. He crashed out in the because it's very windy. There's a lot of echelons, and, and he yeah. crashed out onto the road, smashed his clavicle as they all do. You know, every, everyone breaks a, a collarbone if you're a cyclist. And there's a picture of him about half an hour later with it in a sling, going, "Oh yeah, I need an operation, but I'll be back on the bike in a few weeks. Don't worry about it." And it's just, it's just kind of you know, BAU. <laughs> it's just... Exactly, exactly. You know, and, and and I think that's the risk of, of, of cycling. When we fall, we, we collarbones are the first thing that go. I mean, yeah. so so what's quite interesting, I, I raced the um, Absa Cape Epic last year with a friend of mine, Andrew McLean, who's a former professional cyclist. Mm. And and the year I fell, two years ago, when I fell and smashed my face and ribs in my lung, in our last training ride, we weren't going to race together that epic. In, in our last training ride together, he fell and broke his collarbone. So, right. so he still flew down to the epic, um, to come and watch a little bit and came to visit me in hospital and I was in ICU with broken ribs and everything and he still he had a broken collarbone and had just had surgery and was still in the sling and everything and we sat there saying maybe we should ride Epic together next year and we did right. you know? and, uh, and we, I mean, we did really well we podiumed and we had a we had a great ride but it was really like um, it was more about the comeback story you know two guys who'd, who'd yeah. um, plowed so much time in and fallen within a week of each other and you come back and we're racing so, racing strong. And to your point, you, know, you, you fall, you get up, you, you wipe the dust off and you, 
you know, you have the surgery and you get going again. It's the nature yeah. of the beast. And did it affect your um? Did it did it affect you at all, like downhilling or or anything? Would uh... no, so uh, you know, I think probably what what served me well is my background out of the sport of rugby, where you used to the hard knocks and you you know you always every year you come back from an injury of some sort. So 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 psychologically, I mean, I was I am um, I was obviously a little depressed and had some proper FOMO watching the rest of the race on yeah, TV yeah. and you know couldn't even fly home from Cape Town. I had to catch the train home. It was. And so, so there were like little bits that were quite um, that affected me, but certainly not from a riding perspective. I, um, you know, broken ribs are broken ribs. They they're bloody painful and they sore. And but about I got on my indoor trainer after about ten days and mm. uh, sat like quite rigid and had a little watt bike session and yeah, um, and and you know for about ten days I trained on the watt bike and then then Andrew phoned me and he said, "Listen, how are you feeling?" I said, "No, look, I'm I'm." I'm sore, but I'm okay. He said, do you fancy going for a ride? So we said, okay. I said, okay, where are we going? He said, well, let's go on our mountain bikes. We'll just, you know, we've, we've got the soft tail. We'll go with the, you know, the suspension. We'll just go on the tar. The suspension, we'll just make it nice and soft that it absorbs absolutely everything. And we'll, and we'll just get outdoors, he says, because I'm so tired of being on the white bike and the indoor trainer. And that's exactly what we did. You know, we, um, we went for a nice, slow, easy ride on the tar. And, uh, you know, the... Few days later, we went again, and then he said, "Let's go do this little trail here because it's quite smooth." And we did a little trail, then we did another trail, and before you knew it, you know, we were we were mountain biking, and we'd eased back into it. And and because I think we were on the bikes immediately, and we didn't lose fitness, I think because we eased back into the the trail stuff. You know, there was a there was no mental legacy and no fear factor. No, you know, there's never ever been a fear of falling since you know and that's probably the one question a lot of people ask me is you know having bashed yourself up like that are you not scared and the answer is no you know we it's what we do and we just transition straight back into it um in mountain biking you ride trails and paths um that you would never drive you know it, some of those roads you might cruise up up and go skiing for you know a weekend in winter but some of the trails we ride on the mountain bike you would never ever go to if it weren't for a mountain bike race or a, a long training ride um, and you go with people that are like-minded you go with people who share the same culture of you know tr of, of riding of enjoying the outdoors of camaraderie of drinking nice coffee afterwards and having a laugh it's um it, it, it is it is in many ways cyclists and I, I know people laugh at me when I say this but it is like quite a unique little tribe whether you're a roadie and, and the roadies are very much a different tribe to the mountain bikers but the tribes are linked and they cross over. The, the tribe, it's, it's like a tribe and a culture of sharing experiences and journeys with um, a group of people who, you know, otherwise you would not probably associate with. Yeah. Um, and, and it's about going, going to places and seeing places that you would not normally or ever have dreamt of going to had it not been for the bicycle. It's a very special culture. At the Epic last year, we um, I spent a lot of time, and I'm not dropping name here, but I spent a lot of time with George Hincapie and Christian van der Velde. And it was sensational. You know, it was just yeah. wonderful. And 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 Robbie McEwen, you know, he, he was a day tripper right. and did the commentary, yeah. you know. So I spent a lot of time with the three of them. It was it was fantastic. And um, to, have, to have probably not ridden much in and around them because they were a bit quicker than us. Um, and they were in a different age category, but um, to, have, to, have, to have spent time with them and to have had dinner with them two or three nights, and um, it was sensational, you know. And for, for us, 
mere mortals in cycling to be hanging around with guys like that and learning from them and and them telling us about their day and how tough it was and how they overcame the cramp and the drama because George had some. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it was really interesting and obviously from them you you know you learn enormously. Yeah, what were his legs like? Veiny and yeah, veiny and and they're both yeah. thin little skinny bosses. They'd be really rubbish on a rugby field. Yeah. I mean, I'd love I'd, I'd I'd I mean the last thing I would say is I'd love guys to. Have a look at uh, our charity, and if anyone wants to contribute, that would be brilliant. Um, it's it's uh, it's the Lumahawk Foundation, and it's also quite an interesting story. When I started raising money um, at the Cape Epic, I wore this ridiculously stupid, luminous Mohican bright orange thing on my helmet, um, and uh, so so once we registered our charity formally, we called it the Lumahawk Foundation. Um, we've got a great project now in South Africa, and we'll probably expand it into other parts of sub-Saharan sub Africa where we testing the eyesight of underprivileged children and giving glasses to those in need. The massive problem here in, in Africa, and um, it's really based around helping those kids who, who've suffered, who can't see, you know, achieve their goals and become educated, most importantly. So if uh, anyone wants to have a look, they can just have a look at uh, www.lumawalk.co.za, and we'll put a link up there where you can donate if, if you'd like to. <laughs> Stephen, you read a book about mountain biking once, didn't you? Yes, and the first line was, if mountain biking will involve falling off, if you're not prepared to fall off, you should start reading. Go away <laughs> and do something else, it's like uh, swimming. So, so that's what Joel, well that's one of the things that Joel Stransky is doing in his retirement. Falling off. For, well, yeah, well, hopefully <laughs> he's staying on it, yeah. right? Um, and, and we wish him well with that. Yeah, and good and luck thank for the rest you. of the race. I mean, yeah. still, it's only just started on stage two, I think, today, so he's got another can five I, days. Can I tell the story about how my leg is harder than your mountain bike? Go ahead, because <laughs> I still don't believe it. Tell all. We mentioned uh, Selena last week, Selena Scott, um, David's mountain bike. She was wonderful. Yeah. What's your current bike called? Uh, Roxanne. Okay. She always name your bike. My, my my current road bike is called Jeanette Scott. Yeah. So who knows who Jeanette Scott was? He was in the 1950s version of War of the World. Yes. Yeah. Wasn't she in Day of the Triffids as well? No, it was Day of the Triffids. Yes. Very good, not War of the Worlds. Ah. No, it was War of the Worlds because she also showed up at the end, the grandma in the Tom Cruise version of the film, right at the end. That was there. Oh, right. Same actress who played the, the heroine. You're in all the about movie film. stars, aren't you, Steve? Movie stars. <laughs> all about. Yes. So, uh, where was I? <laughs> oh yes, my leg is actually my harder leg. than metal. <laughs> I had um, borrowed uh, David's Selena and was in Swinley Forest in Berkshire and, you know, was following the mountain bike book to the letter and had fallen off and fallen down. And I smacked my leg very hard against the top tube. Put a shout out there. Um, and At Top Tube Podcast. <laughs> Yeah. What's our Insta? Never mind. Um, it's the same. I ended up on the ground with a massive bump on my leg, and, and there, there was a conspicuous dent in the top of the aluminium top tube that was not there before. And it was amazing that I hadn't broken my leg because if I had, I'd be in a bit of trouble because I'm about to have, you know, lied there, laid there until someone rescued me. Ultimately, I don't think I had a phone in those days. Move on. Um, and I was able, despite the burgeoning bump on my leg, to get back and ride home. But 
There's no other explanation for it. On the tumble down the hill, my leg had struck the top of the top tube and caused a dent in the top tube. And my leg did not get broken. Just, why do you keep saying it? <laughs> when I keep um, saying top tube. Don't, don't you say the, 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 top, the top tube uh, probably just struck something else? No, it didn't. It struck my leg because there was a huge bump on my did leg you, for, did you, for did days you after. Did separated from the bike? No. It would, like, I know you, what happened. You, but you took the bike into Evans, I believe. And the mechanic who was giving your bike a service said, no, nah, there's no way that's possible. And oh, I agree. Well, no, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, when you're we'll, we'll move on. But, um, you know, that happened. My leg is harder than this. There you have it. And on that bombshell. Um, corrections, David, at this point? Well, I, I hate to say that I'm um, just, just checking up on the uh, the information superhighway. You should get involved with it. There's a lot of information on there. And the piece of information I found is that Jeanette Scott was in Dave Dreams, <coughs> but not in War of the Worlds. Really? Who yeah. is the girl in War of the Worlds? Let me um, tell you that. That was da, da, da. Good. So Robinson. We've gone from we've gone from the Top Tube Cycling Podcast to the Ineos podcast to the, to the yes, the, the movie star. Uh, before we head any further down that road, yeah. shall we uh, shall we move it on? To part three. Yeah. Here oh. comes here comes part three. Oh, I thought we just started part three. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the that's going to be good. Is that the Stransky thing? Yeah, part two was Stransky. Yeah. Oh, okay, part three then. Let's go. I'm pumped. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about on the back of Joel Stransky. Let's say welcome to part three. Let's just get on with it, Graham. Welcome to part three. Was that okay? <laughs> go again. Was yes. Again? Welcome to part three. You're a professional three. broadcaster. Get this right. Welcome to part three. Excellent. And in part three. Okay. But we thought it'd be a little bit of fun to talk about um, some... Interesting examples of riders who have gone on to do um, different things in their retirement. So um, the reverse. So, so, so far, so not your not your typical director sportif route. No. Um, not your typical pundit route. Where 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 have these examples? So we're gone? talking about the reverse here. So so um, Joel is a, a guy who was an incredibly successful sportsman who's taken up cycling. And there are a few rugby players that have. We know that Lawrence Delalio did, and, and um, uh, we know football players. <laughs> David Flatman gave it a crack and wrote a hilarious piece in. Oh, I indeed, yeah. Which cycling mag, but anyway, Flats um, is, and, and, you know, is uh, excellent. Lee Dixon and um, uh, Graham Lasso are a keen cyclist mm. as well. Is Graham Lasso coming on the show? I've been invited him, yeah. Is he going to be a close personal friend? Um, I think uh, get Lee Dixon on as well. I, I, I went out of my way to beat Lee Dixon's time on one of the climbs in Richmond Park. I had just several games, and I couldn't <laughs> accept that a footballer, a retired footballer, was faster than me on a climb. Kenny's in great shape. Yeah. Uh, but this is the reverse, isn't it? So this that that sportsman who got into cycling, we're talking about cyclists, what they've done. Indeed. After. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you want to start us off? Well, I mean, the one that we've already talked about, I guess, uh, was Simon Gerrans, who um, you interviewed. Yeah. Uh, but I want to take us back a little bit further. So what can you tell me about uh, Gino Bartoli, Stephen? The Italian. Um Cyclist from the era of Fausto Coppi, from the year of the. Actually, no, he was pre war, wasn't he? He was, well, pre and then into the war, yeah. Yes, well, he was Italian, he won a lot of Giro d'Italia's. Yeah, he won three Giro's? Giro's d'Italia. Ah, no, ah, smart. Uh, oh, that's what I can tell you. <laughs> no, he's got one. No, 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 no. Oh, well, well yes, I'm going to make the most of this. I found out a couple of years ago, and I told my you know, running club mates, who were remarkably unmoved, 
that um, <laughs> the plural of Giro is actually Giri. Giri. Yeah, Giri. Ah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well done. Yep. Well, you you win this round. <laughs> uh, um, and carry also, on. he won the nineteen thirty eight Tour de France. Now, his this this is a bit of a cheat. And what what we're looking for is interesting stories, really, about cyclists that have gone on to do other things. And this is an incredible story, really. So, the war broke out. And he'd won uh, Giro Italia. He'd won the Tour de France. And obviously, Mussolini became you know Mussolini was very fond of him and wanted to highlight him as as being uh, an example of Italian success. Um, then the war broke out. Obviously, there weren't any major stage races going on during the war. Uh, Bartley could still be out seen doing long training rides. And it only became clear many years after the war that what he'd actually been doing is not going on long training rides. But in direct opposition to, to Mussolini, he'd been taking documents, taking secret letters, taking uh, forged passports to help Jewish people out of Italy who were being persecuted. Um, it's an amazing story, I mean. And I like the idea that he would he would just be waved on because he was uh, Gino Bartley. He was known as a, a professional cyclist, so no one was ever going to question no what he was doing. No one's going to check yeah. his pockets. He's yeah. just going on a long training ride. Why, why wouldn't he be going on a long training ride? He's the perfect spy, and I can't believe the film's not been made here. Yeah. yeah, it's hiding in plain sight, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Genius. This was also in the area where in the area in the, <laughs> in the comes back to you very quickly, doesn't <laughs> it? Yeah. In the era in which uh, professional cyclists were seen to well, actually the, not the, seen the take, take the era. Yes. Well, was this an era? Clearly, your era. Um, uh, yes, it, there were many incidences of of riders taking the train and, and not being found out. Um, however, it was a ludicrous era in cycling really where there was no regard for riders safety or health at all um there were many incidences of you know I, I forget who it was who completed a 400 kilometer stage over goat parts in the in the alps where there were bears hanging around yeah. and finished the what the the name oscar lapise comes to mind anyway he famously got over the line and threw his bike down and, and shouted assassins to the organizers and then you know, went off. Much like the epic strop had by David Miller at the uh, at the Vuelta of Spania in the nineties, who finished on Glaru and then tore off his race number dramatically. My favourite stop was uh, um, your friend Bradley Wiggins at the Giro d'Italia. Was it the Giro? Was it before that when he uh, he first had the electronic gears and he threw his bike in uh, the yeah. and it ended up perfectly, perfectly against yeah. the wall. Trentino. I think it was, yeah, just beforehand. Yes. Um, and he'd, he'd slipped a bit back. And he he know, could do no wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even time. the bike ended up perfectly. Um, the, so when, when Barkley was stopped, as he was a few times, his argument was, and, and it seemed to be a successful one because obviously he uh, managed to get away from it, with it for the whole war, was that his bike couldn't be searched because it was finely calibrated because he was a professional cyclist and everyone left it alone. So they'd search him, but they'd leave his bike. Which is hilarious because those things weighed like 15 kilos. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Big eye in them as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Anyway, that's, uh, that's my story. One of these days, I'll regale you with the famous story of Eugene Christophe and the bellows, but I'll save that for another episode. Um, Heel bellows? No, not... Uh, the Buck Rogers as well star of, uh, the as well star of Andrew Beale. Yes, and Buck Rogers. Yeah. No, 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 I'm talking about... Um, oh, you're really bad on movie stars today. Who am I thinking of? Gil or probably Robert Barton. No, who was... 
Find out who, who started in the... Gil Bellows, was, Gil Bellows is the guy, is Tommy in Yes, Georgia. I know that now, but I think he shares a name with the guy who was I think we should move on to another interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got one for you. You're an interesting person. Dylan Casey. You recognise the name? No. Steve? Yes. Rode for a few years, um, one of the first to peel off and do his own thing in the US Postal team in the 90s. Correct. Never rode a tour with Armstrong. Mm. Uh, I think did ride the Welter. Um, went to the Sydney Olympics, um, but didn't compete. Injury kept him out. Did he take forged documents hidden in his... <laughs> he did not, no. Uh, but what he did do was, because when he was, uh, when he was racing, he was living uh, in California around... Um, Do you know who else was living in California? Thank you. (laughs) It was Gil Gil Gerard who starred in Buck Rogers in the 20th century. Anyway, carry on. Dylan Casey. Living around uh, Silicon Valley and had made contact... Because if it's a valley, it must also have climbs. Sure. Perfect. I I mean, it's all all in the name. Anyway, living around Silicon Valley, made made contacts, was was that... um, was obviously that way minded um, and went on to become um, a pretty big deal in terms of product and design at Google um, and, and Yahoo uh, and is now at a company called fair.com um, which as far as I can make out is for uh, largely aimed at, at people who want to drive their cars um, as, a, as a taxi service so in the kind of um, and, and you can pick your car it became a big phone. deal in the early-ish days of Google which is really yeah, funny actually because well, would you say he's even now, richer or less, slightly yeah, less wealthy than Lance Armstrong. Great question. It depends on Armstrong's how much Armstrong actually made from Uber. No, but the yeah. do the calculation yes. is Armstrong a lot of money. would be bankrupt now if it wasn't for a tiny investment in Uber. Yeah, yeah. yeah isn't it? That's amazing, isn't it? Um, so it would it would seem that Dylan Casey got out of U.S. Postal at the right time and in to um, a, oh, a booming. He's got taxi. out. He's got out of. Exactly post right and time. into email and telecommunications. It's, Dylan Casey is a metaphor. Absolutely for, fantastic for the, the technological Dylan Casey shift study in the in the twenty first century. You might say, no, you wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say it. You you did. Steve yeah. Steve might. Yeah. Um, Steve, what else might you say? Who have you got for us? Um, well, there's a number of um, people who've done ridden bikes. You've, uh, really <laughs> so on we, we'll try and recreate the thousand yard stare that Steve just gave Davis <laughs> for uh, for our Instagram channel. Uh, who have you got for us, Stephen? Well, in terms of great careers post cycling, yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm just gonna go for the obvious, Sean Kelly. Well, the greatest career post cycling. Yes, yeah, the great Sean Kelly. For anyone who doesn't know, um, his whole career is something of a bonification. Yeah. Uh, a broadcasting <laughs> legend, uh, one of Graham's Eurosport colleagues now, um, but um, someone who I would say wasn't an obvious choice for being a legendary broadcaster when he retired from the site. So what did he win a lot in time? What did he win? He was uh, world number one, season-ending world number one for seven years. He won Paris-Nice seven years in a row. He won. So he's, he's the reason that Paris-Nice is called the Irish race. Yes, he, he is. won it from 82 it is, to 88. Yes, it is fair to say he is Ireland's greatest sporting legend, um, someone who's fiercely protected over there. Um, and he's a lovely man as well, actually, having spoken to him on a couple of occasions at Sport Magazine. He's also an incredibly hard man in the great tradition of sort of cyclists in the 70s, of 80s, the, the, you know, the hard man of hard men, I think. Um, he 
won many of the major classics and was hugely respected by other riders. Um, he was one of the few at the time to obviously be able to win races like the Tour of Flanders, but also um, take Grand Tours. Um, he notably, he was a four-time green jersey in the Tour de France, a record that stood until Eric Zabel eclipsed it. Um, and he won one Vuelta and famously was on the verge of securing a second and had to pull out with a couple of days to go due to paralysing saddle sores. Um, and equally um, famously lost his Vuelta trophy, a trophy that has yet to turn up to this day. Pickles, dogs everywhere. Yes. He's, he's quite keen to find it, apparently. Anyway, um, my favourite story about him was once when he was interviewed after a race and he looked away from the interview to ask his wife to stop leaning on his car bonnet. And she retorted, oh, yeah, I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> she don't. retorted that... Um, she please do. She Just know, pull back from it rightly, <laughs> carry on. She suggested, you know, with wisdom comes age. Um, with age comes wisdom. <laughs> I have a cold, did I mention? Um, she retorted, are oh, you, you care more about the car than you do me? And he famously came back like that. With no, it's 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 the bike, then the car, then you. <laughs> um, one of one of Sean's uh, one of our favourite phrases of his, which he will always say in a, during a long stage race, is that anyone in with a chance of winning the stage is making the calculation, or, or making the time cut, or making the time cut. Roy Tavold, no, he'd be making the calculation. Making the calculation in, in, in exactly that. Actually, is he in the room? <laughs> so we are introducing. Uh, from this week, uh, we are going to be making the calculation about races emulating in the, next week, the great Sean Kelly. With this weekend's Milan San Remo, which we're all very excited about. The first monument of the, Ste of the Stephen of the season. <laughs> Stephen, go. Um, well, the connection between Sean Kelly and Milan San Remo, particularly, is the 1992 Milan San Remo when Kelly was nearing the end of his career. He was also famous for being the last rider in the peloton to make the switch from clipless pedals to clipped pedals um, and <laughs> seamless <laughs> seamless as Sean's I am Ron Burgundy <laughs> <laughs> um, yes um, gosh what's going on with my voice um, so yes he was one of the last to do that and also he kept wearing one of those old style sort of string helmets rather than going to the hard shell mm. um very much a traditionalist. Anyway, fantastically strong guy in the in the style of Sagan, where he's not an out and out. He was never an out and out sprinter, just incredibly strong. Mm. Ultimately, and was able to contend on that basis. Nineteen ninety two Milan San Remo was, um, for those of you who don't know the course, is is defined. It's a very long. Um, it's the longest of all the major classics, um, at two hundred and ninety five kilometers. A very attritional race which goes along the Ligurian coast and finishes um, famously going over two climbs called La Cipressa and Il Poggio. Um, two climbs which regularly are the theatre on which the race is decided. Last year it was um, Nibali making his attack um, on the last climb and holding it on the descent, a famously sinewy and technical descent. Now, in 1992, Sean, uh, as he tells the story in his autobiography, Hunger, he allowed um, an Italian, well, a, a world-class um, 
cyclist of, of his day, Moreno Argentine, um, to attack on the last climb. And Kelly was making a calculation, or as David was, David, we're going to let you. Making, making, making the calculation. He was making, I'm going to say he was making, he made the calculation. Yes, no, he allowed Argentine to go at the top of the climb, um, and thought I'm going to bring you back on the descent. And um, in between that happening, one of the camera bikes actually crashed into the wall and actually went flying up in the air. And actually, it happened just in front of Kelly. He had to put his arm out, and mercifully, the bike just sort of went past his ear. <laughs> and he thought, right, I'm having, I'm, I'm, yes. In the Irish, he was like, I'm, I'm having him on the on the descent. And what followed was one of the most, I would say, the most breathless, daring and reckless descents in all of cycling history where essentially Kelly just thought, I don't care if I'm going to end up in a greenhouse or splat all over the road. I'm, I'm going to catch up with him and win this race. And what followed was essentially a, you know, a masterclass in just absolute not giving a crap. And, and willing to Bollocks actually... out descending. Yeah, yeah. The... Where he was essentially skimming the walls with his elbow. Um, he dropped everyone else behind. And famously, Argentine thought that he had the race in the back. And he looked back and he saw Kelly just come out, come up to him. And there's kind of almost shock in his in his face. Because the, the significance of his advantage at the top of the climb was such that he thought, well, the race is mine. And once Kelly came up to him, he realised, oh, the, the fight went out of him. And Kelly took the sprint. Um, almost as a formality, but um, yeah, if, if there's, I'm sure there's footage online. I encourage everyone to go and see it. And so, it's a race that's often said it can be decided on the project. It sometimes ends in a in an absolute bunch win as well. It's uh, most famously 2017, which uh, we featured on our Instagram uh, this week. Uh, a ridiculously close finish between uh, Sagan, Alaphilippe, and Kwiatkowski, won by uh, the Skyman. The Skyman. Kowski, um, to pronounce his name two different ways in a single sentence. Uh, those two will probably be involved again, I presume. Uh, I believe so. Um, Alaphilippe for sure. So Sagan, Sagan's going, going to feature. Um, Greg Van, Greg Van Avermaet, GVA. It's not had stunning results so far this season, but it's always been up there. So uh, this would be a better race for him than say Stradivari. If it's a sprint. Do we rate Sam Bennett's chances on the back of um, he's strong, on the back actually. of Sean Kelly's so, win? Um, on the back, I mean. But then would, he, would he be allowed to go uh, straight up against Sagan? That that would be interesting. What how that would manifest if they both came to the line relatively close to each other? How do you think they choose it then? If they're both in the race, who's in the better position, or is it? So, I mean, Sagan's the alpha, the alpha male there, isn't he? The alpha dog. So, so, so Bennett has, and we mentioned this happening earlier. Podcast, Bennett has led out Sagan and won the race before, won the stage. Well, Bennett won't win because, in a situation where he and Sagan are in the same sprint, then he will work for Sagan. I mean, things we can guarantee if Nibley's there, he's going to attack on the Poggio. That's a guarantee. But I, I suspect, given the, the quality of the field and, and what the weather is Nibley like, is that, there. That Nibley will not be allowed to do that again. Um, Valverde and Lander at, uh, and Steve to quote you movie star um, Lander no chance can't sprint um, Valverde would not come to the finish in the same sort of group as he did at the World Championship such that he will be able to win the sprint there will be and isn't Alaphilippe just, be- just a better Valverde yeah? yes yeah 
So, okay, who's your who's your call then? Making the calculation, who's who's Sagan. your man for it? Pete, uh, Peter Sagan for Stephen. Not Jurich Sagan. Um, I'm going to go Alaphilippe. David's going with Alaphilippe. I'm going to call it ending in a sprint and Fernando Gaviria for the sake of difference. Um, with a dark horse of Kalina Buey. Oh, nice. Interesting. Any dark horses for you? GVA. Do you know I think it's looked really good? And I think we'll go... And the darkest of dark horses, actually, given his form. Uh, Simon Clark. Uh, Simon Clark has looked fantastic so far this season. And I think... Uh, education he, first. I think he's capable of having a dig. All right. You know, we've got to go for an outsider. So I'm going well, yeah, to make keep the it, calculation that he's keep got it fresh. Any, any British interest? Let's not forget that in 2016, Ben, ben Swift finished second. Well, it also doesn't look like um, Cavendish is going to be... Ten years since Cav won it, of course. Yeah. That, that Horrible weather. And he, he hit the bollard last year. Remember that? Going up, oh, one of the most spectacular did, yeah. crashes. Absolutely, uh, 360, wasn't it? Was, yeah, yeah, a real kind of flip, which you've done actually. Yeah, me and Kevin Well, yeah, you crashed into Stephen rather than a bollard, but okay. very impressive nonetheless. Luke Rowe will be there, and if he was given the license to do it, he's looked incredibly strong this year. Yeah, hasn't he? yeah, um, as ever, really. He's also looked like Graham, <laughs> or maybe I've yeah, he's looked like me. I've looked like him. Uh, I mean, that's flattering, poor old Luke Rowe. He's he's not carrying that much timber, is he? But I think it's flattering. To, to Luke Crewe. Oh, thanks, mate. Right. Yeah. Um, Nielsen Palace is going to be there, Stephen? Yes. Um, Hopefully demonstrating his, his, his Tom Can I change my dark horse? Tom Dumoulin. Tom Dumoulin. I would think that's very wishful thinking. He has no way in a million years does he have the power to take out a sprint. No, I know. But if there's a breakaway, he's in the right place. Well, it's, it's, it favours, it it's, a, it's a famously a race for the smarter rider. Isn't it? Well, if, particularly if, Arnaud de Mer, who, who smartly hung yeah. onto a car in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> that is smart. Yeah, that's um, canny. Tom, I, for me, Tom Dumoulin only wins it if it's a ridiculously hard race and, you know, yeah. uh, very attritional, and then he'd have a chance. But, um, you know, well, let's see. Um, Obviously, um, Michael Matthews, John Davenport, Christoph will all be usual suspect because they are indeed competing. Well, we, the only thing we do know is that it Someone forward. Good. Well, that's, that's, that's only something that only your yeah, yeah. your keenly analytical mind could come up with. <laughs> um, well, thank you, boys. It's, it seems like a good place to to draw it to a close. We're looking forward to San Remo. Um, we'll have a bit of reflection on that next week, among other things. So, should we should we leave it there? Why not? All right. Well, it's goodbye from me, Graham Wilgus, Stephen. Salut from me. Salut from you, David. Tschüss. Lovely family. Good. Bye. See you next week. <laughs>